Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll Badlands listeners, are you here? Are you with me? Are you too tired to go to bed? Too riled up to stay home? I know I am. This is another podcast that comes after the podcast. Welcome to Badlands, the rap party. Welcome to the Badlands bonus episode, another thing we like to call the rap party. Just like that other show, this is a show that comes after the show. A voyage from one episode of Badlands to the other, the backlot breakdown of sorts. On this bonus episode, we are talking about Brandon Lee. Not Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee. Wet Hot American Summer and the French Connection. Also, my recommendations and your movie-focused voicemails, texts, and more Badlands listeners. Let's get into it. Greetings, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the rap party. Let's dive right into Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee, of course, son of the legendary Bruce Lee, a man who probably needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Bruce Lee, martial arts master, actor, great disruptor of the old guard with his revolutionary style of fighting and training, trained the likes of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski to name just a few, but I'm not here to talk about Bruce. I'm here to talk about his son, Brandon, a son who in many ways followed in his old man's footsteps and also in many ways met a similar fate. Bruce Lee was 32 when he died in 1973, and then his son, Brandon Lee, was only 28 when he died 20 years later in 1993. Brandon Lee was haunted by the legacy of his superstar father. He was also haunted by an old family curse, a curse that some say took his dad, and some say it took Brandon too on the set of a film called The Crow, sort of cross between a superhero blockbuster and a brooding art film that was 100% goth. We get into that in the full episode on Brandon Lee. It was meant to be Brandon's big break, The Crow, and also his big moment to escape his dad's shadow. But the shoot of the film was plagued by injury, electrocution, storms, fire, car crashes, culminating in a real tragedy when a prop gun fired a real bullet, killing Brandon Lee. We've seen this recently, specifically during the production of a movie called Rust, when a prop gun used by actor Alec Baldwin fired a real bullet, hitting and 
killing the cinematographer of that film. Now, since the dawn of cinema, many people have died on movie sets, okay? Stuntmen, cameramen, helicopter pilots, even actors. One that comes to mind happened 10 years prior to Brandon Lee in 1983 during the making of Twilight Zone, the movie, when actor Vic Morrow and two kids were killed by an out-of-control helicopter, which then led to director John Landis going on trial for involuntary manslaughter, of which he was acquitted, but which led to some big changes in the way that movies are made. This sounds like a potential Badlands episode, but I digress. At the time, though, in 1993, Brandon Lee's death on the set of The Crow was a huge deal. Uh, It was more widely reported on than the many other accidents and deaths that have happened on movie sets before, Uh, not just because of the manner in which it happened, but because of who he was, Bruce Lee's son. I can still remember Howard Stern talking about this. I remember Howard Stern described Brandon Lee as having a great American jawline. And I thought, that's a shame. But I also thought, I wish I had a great American jawline. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, this all got me thinking, okay? This whole thing that I'm talking about got me thinking. Actors whose parents were also actors, okay? Lots of Kirk Douglas talk here, because in the last rap party, I, I referred to Kirk Douglas mistakenly as Kurt Russell. However, Kirk Douglas was the father of Michael Douglas. And Kurt Russell's, uh, I don't think she's his wife, girlfriend of many years, common-law wife, Goldie Hawn, is the mother, of course, to Kate Hudson. And Oliver Hudson. I'm not quite the star Kate is, but on Instagram he kind of is. Tom Hanks and Colin Hanks. Who else do we got? What are some parent-child uh, uh, relationships that have sort of become iconic in Hollywood? Uh, where you're going, okay, yeah, Michael Douglas, I'm going to watch this movie because I'm a fan of Kirk Douglas. Or you're vice versa. You're like, Kirk Douglas, that's what happens to me. Kirk Douglas comes on. I don't know shit about Kirk Douglas, but I see him on TV and I go, that's Michael Douglas's dad. And I, I get interested. Where does this connection line up for you guys? What fathers and sons or mothers and daughters or mothers and sons or fathers and daughter tandems from Hollywood uh, am I missing here? I've got Tom Hanks, Colin Hanks, Goldie Hawn, Kate Hudson, Kirk Douglas, and Michael Douglas. I know there's more. Johnny Depp, recent one, and his daughter, whose name I can't remember, who's in uh, Icon, right? That's the name of that, that HBO thing we were talking about a couple weeks ago. All right, call me uh, 617-906-6638 and let me know who your favorite acting family 617-906-6638. Leave me your answer via voicemail or send me a text. Speaking of the voicemails, let's get into this one here uh, from the 608 on the question of scariest villains from Hollywood history. Hey, Jake. Uh, Brock in the 619. The greatest villain, uh, scariest guy from movies 1986, Blue Velvet, Frank Booth. His character is terrifying. When you first meet him, that scene where he walks in and Jeffrey Beaumont's hiding in the closet and witnesses the debauchery that happens is just unbelievable. Leaves your jaw on the floor. It's... uh One of my favorite movies for whatever dark reason, but I love it. Frank Booth is the scariest villain ever, in my opinion. Keep doing what you're doing. Love the show. Uh, The reason, Brock, is because you're a sick fuck. What can I say? (laughs) I'm kidding. I kid, I kid Brock because I love. Yes, Dennis Hopper's Frank is super scary. Uh, Also, Feck. Dennis Hopper played Feck in The River's Edge. Not as scary as Frank, but scary nonetheless. All right, let's check out this one here from the 303. Jake, Brennan, the society in the 303. I wanted to address the 
favorite films of Jodie Foster, and I have to go straight to The Accused, 1989, with Kelly McGillis, Best Actress winner. That movie, uh, first time I saw it, I was uh, about 10, 11 years old, and changed me forever as a human being. And her performance yeah, throughout her catalog, including things like Sounds of the Lions, of course, could overshadow that performance, but to this day, I believe it is her best work. So if you haven't seen The Accused, do it. We'll see you soon. Rock and roll. Scotty, you saw The Accused when you were 10 years old, dude. Uh, I've seen The Accused. Yes, I have. It's an amazing movie, but no wonder you were you were changed after seeing this film. I have a nine-year-old. I can't imagine them seeing this. And I go through this in my head all the time. I saw some really fucked up movies when I was really young, and I'm convinced that it messed me up, wasn't healthy for me in a lot of ways, but I'm also convinced that it led me to what I'm doing now for work, which I love my job, and I'm, I'm thankful uh, that I have this sort of uh, that I have this view on culture, on films, on, uh, on music. I was listening to stuff when I was young that I probably shouldn't have been listening to either. So I I go, am I overprotective here? I know I am. What can I and can't I show my kid? And uh, I, I try. There's no hard cutoff for me. It's not like there's a certain age when they're just going to understand it. I think obviously it it's kid to kid. Um, and my kid at nine years old is a lot younger than I was at nine years old for a lot of different reasons. So uh, when he's 10, I will not be showing him the accused Scotty, but uh, I'm sure it scared you for life, but contributed, like I said, to setting you up to have some great taste in movies. All right, let's check out this voicemail from the 901. Jake, hey, it's Lee from Memphis. Hey, um, the other day when you mentioned the American Boy documentary, I found it, and I went home and watched it. I was completely intrigued. I had never heard of Stephen Prince before, and man, from the get-go, as soon as they open the door, they welcome him into that guy's house, chaos ensues, and it lasts forever. Uh, I'll just mention it by one word, and that is wrestling. If you can't, you've got to find this. You've got to find it. Uh, screw HBO or Max or whatever it's called now. Go watch it. It's it's intriguing, and it ends, gosh, kind of tragically, too. But, uh, yeah, I recommend this to you. So, uh, anyway, peace out, and uh, have a good one. See ya. Thank you, Lee. Guys, Lee is talking about the Martin Scorsese film American Boy uh, with Stephen Prince from Taxi Driver. Stephen Prince uh, was Martin Scorsese's buddy. He was his roommate when Martin Scorsese lived with Robbie Robertson. I was able to watch this, and it is as incredible, this documentary, American Boy by Martin Scorsese, that Lee's talking about. It is as incredible as I wanted it to be. For those of you who don't know, I talked about this in the last rap party. I'll talk about it again briefly here. Basically, Martin Scorsese, his buddy, Stephen Prince, was this like crazy New York character who he cast in Taxi Driver to play Easy Andy, the gun dealer, to Travis Bickle. And he kind of just like invites him into his buddy's house in the Hollywood Hills, sits him down, and just puts a camera on him and lets him tell stories for an hour. And it's fucking incredible. One of the stories was ripped almost verbatim by Quentin Tarantino and ended up in Pulp Fiction. Check it out, American Boy. It's on HBO Max uh, if you can figure out your password and your username. <laughs> Easier than I than I was able to. You'll be able to check that out. American Boy, Martin Scorsese. Don't miss it. One of his two documentaries, right? He's made two, that and Italian American, I think. All right, uh, back to the issue of favorite bad guys. Let's hear from The Wolf in the 210. What's up, Jake? This is Wolf of SA from Texas. And... 
my favorite bad guy of all time, hands down. I know it's not a movie. However, it's a show. And my favorite bad guy has to be, hands down, Mr. Tony Soprano. <laughs> my favorite bad guy of all time. How could you have so much power, so much power, and just just by looking at somebody to to have you feared by a lot of people. And it's just amazing how Gandolfini portrayed that character. And so my favorite, hands down, has to be Tony Soprano. Big fan. Much love. And he was loved, too. All right, guys. 617-906-6638. Hit me up with your answer to the question, who are your favorite actors or actresses whose parents were also actors and actresses? Let me know if you finally saw American Boy. All right? Let me know what you thought of that Scorsese documentary. I bet you some of you didn't even know Scorsese made documentaries, did you? Uh, that's another question. What great directors have just sort of like, you know, quietly done a couple docs on the side that we haven't heard about? Um, I bet I would be surprised. I bet you guys know some stuff I don't know. Let me know. 617 Oh six 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 three eight. You might hear your answer responded to here in the rap party bonus episode, or perhaps a response directly to your phone from yours truly. Of course, you could text me as well with your answer six one seven nine zero six 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 three eight. I got that OG Boston area code six one seven nine zero six 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 three eight. All right, all right. Let's get into some of your texts, shall we? Uh, we got one here from Sherry from the 424 writes, and can't not shout out to Ed Norton in American History X and James Cagney and White Heat. This is in response to your favorite villains. Uh, yeah, those are good ones. Good ones, good ones, good ones. So the 925 writes in in response to our Bogart episode last week. Uh, just Bogart movie in a lonely place. Hmm. Uh, I have not seen that, but yeah, you sound lonely by your text. I hope you're not lonely. I don't want any of you guys to be lonely. The 780 writes in, hey, it's Lee from the 780 in Northern Alberta. Hands down, best bad guy in films has to be Ben Foster. Can play the calm psycho in 310 to Yuma or straight unhinged like an alpha dog, an underrated actor who just crushes at being a villain. I know who you're talking about, and I think you're onto something there. The 907 writes in, hey, Jake. It's Lisa coming to you from the 907. I tried to get this info to you on voicemail, but I fear that I got tongue-tied and that you can't use it. Without a doubt, the late, great Alan Rickman plays the most iconic villains, Hans Gruber in Die Hard, uh, Evil Land Baron, Elliot Marston in Quigley Down Under, the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Side note, he had all the best lines in that movie. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to say this wrong for all you Harry Potter fans Severus Snape in the Harry Potter series. Uh, he was the villain. Or did he save the day? Question mark. Kept us all wondering until the end. All right. All right. He was even the husband who was considering cheating on his wife in love. Actually, Alan Rickman didn't play one iconic villain. All his villains became iconic. Well said. In the 907, Lisa goes on to say he will be missed. Great text, Lisa. Keep it up. All right, the 603 writes in, late to the party on some of your bonus episodes, just listening to your question regarding how world events impacted films and speaking from a total personal perspective. On the night of 9-11-2001, my husband and I were numb and devastated like everyone else from the day's events. Rattled and anxious from watching the news all day, he suggested we take a break and watch something else. The movie he chose 
was Billy Elliot. And normally this movie would not be our kind of film, and it would have never crossed our minds to watch it, but there we were, laughing and then crying our eyes out. It was the perfect movie for us that night. We rewatched it with my kids about five years ago and prepared them first for how emotional it would be, but of course it wasn't. It proved to us that the context in which you watch a film has a huge impact on your opinion of the film. Nothing new on groundbreaking in that revelation, but important to keep in mind. Thank you for your podcast. I love each of them, and I'm always provoked by your questions, but stop myself from responding to all of them. So please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, 603. I think you're absolutely right. Film watching is a very subjective experience, and it's hard to not take the context into consideration. I thought that was that was well-written, and I only wish you sent it in earlier so I could have put it on the show that ended up coming out the week of 9-11 that just passed us. 310 writes in, uh, Hey, Jake, love both shows. Late response to a few Badlands questions. Best book to movie, Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. Great book and great bringing the characters to life by Ed Norton and Brad Pitt. Screenplay is virtually the book. Bad guy to cheer for, De Niro playing Neil McCauley. Always cheering for him. Yeah, you're totally right here. Always cheering for him to just get away with it. The diner scene with him and Pacino is timeless. Now, I'm not a big 90s guy, but these two films are amazing. Keep up the great work. Rock a roll. Uh, listen, 310, you'll be happy to know I just got off a call, a Zoom call with my friend Coop, and he was wearing this amazing Heat t-shirt, and it had uh, De Niro holding up Val Kilmer, and underneath it just said, Friends in the Friends TV show font. And I was instantly jealous of that that man for not, you know, I didn't have that t-shirt he did. But yeah, back to your point. Yeah, I've never read Fight Club, but I've heard similar. I've heard that it is a great adaptation and uh, I'm definitely rooting for De Niro in the end of Heat more than I am Pacino. So you're right about that as well. 360 writes in, hey Jake, Mary here. And she's got a picture of her and I. Uh, without reading her text, I'm going to get, I think this was taken in Nashville in 2019 in my book signing. Now let's see what she says here. I just listened to the bonus episode of Badlands episode where you mentioned the movie, The Bad and the Beautiful. You kept saying Kurt Russell. Ah, that's right. That's right. But I'm sure you, I did. I said, Kurt Russell, Mary's right. I should have said Kirk Douglas. You know, I just fucked up. It happens. Uh, I, I meant Kurt Douglas, Kirk Douglas in my head. I was thinking of Kirk Douglas. I just said Kurt Russell. It happens. But thank you. We're not going to go back and correct it. It's a bonus episode. But I appreciate the correction. Mary goes on to say, you kept saying Kurt Russell, but I'm sure you meant Kirk Douglas as Kurt would have been just a baby when that movie came out. You're right, Mary. He would have. Anyway, you should look into doing an episode on Kirk Douglas. He was connected to the disappearance of a starlet back in the late 1940s. Check it out. I'm an OG listener from way back in the beginning of Disgraceland, and I met you at Powell's when your book came out. So I was wrong. This is not in Nashville. Oh, this is a great bookstore in Portland, Oregon. Powell's, that's where that is, yes. Here's a picture of the two of us after you signed my book, wondering if there are any plans to put on another book. I've got plans, they're just not solid plans. Mary goes on to say, or maybe a book featuring some of the subjects from Badlands. Now, that's a good idea. Love all the shows. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate the long-term support. It's awesome of you to send that picture, and I really appreciate it. And uh, I love the idea of a Kirk Douglas episode paging Zeth Lundy. Let's look into that. That sounds very, very interesting. 310 writes in, likable bad guy, Willem Dafoe, in To Live and Die in L.A. Love your show. Thanks, Trevor. Trevor, you got it, buddy. Another one from the 310. Where's the 310? I feel like I should be visiting the 310 and doing some sort of event. They got a lot of messages and voicemails from the 310. I'm not going to look. I could look. It's easy. There's a computer right in front of me. I got to put my phone down. I got to type. On the, I'm actually holding a phone, too, so I could look there, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to look up the 310 area code. One of you guys is going to text in 617-906-6638 and let me know where you're from. 
310s, okay? And what event I should be doing out there. Some live event, all right? I kind of got an itch. I'm doing a live thing this week. It's not my gig. It's my friend Adams from Loka Connie. But I'm kind of like, hey, maybe I'll do something. I don't know what. It's been a while since I've been out there. It's been a while. Last summer, Newport Folk Festival. That was it. That was the last time I was on stage as a Disgraceland thing. All right, what else we got here? We got a Western recommendation coming in from the 229 from Becky. I heard you mention Organic Chianti in the Jodie Foster rap party. I need more info, please. And for a Western, I recommend Tombstone. Okay, Becky, the Organic Chianti, I think it's just called Organic Chianti. And it comes in a... It, it's in a, it's in like a half size bottle at Whole Foods, and this is not a Whole Foods sponsorship, not in the least. And it's in a little basket things that you get, like when you get a bottle of house like table wine at a restaurant. You know what I'm talking about? The bottles in the basket. Is it basket? Like the wicker thing? I don't know, but that's it. And I think it's literally just called organic Chianti. They don't have them at every Whole Foods, but they do have them. That's where I, it's good. It's really good, actually. All right, the 716 writes in, Jake, as an avid reader, I love to see books become movies. Sure, they have to leave out parts and take liberties, but I really enjoy seeing someone else's interpretation. Some of my favorites have been Rosemary's Baby, which is spot on the book, almost reads as a screenplay. A Clockwork Orange and The Lovely Bones, Nicole in Buffalo. Nicole in Buffalo, haven't heard from you in a while, Nicole. Thanks for checking back in. I agree. I haven't read any of those books that you mentioned. I think it'd be hard for me to read Rosemary's Baby and or Exorcist. Super intense. Uh, yeah, no, I guess I would want to read the books now that I say it. I'm having a complete reversal of opinion here. I remember reading the Friends of Eddie Coyle, the book, and it wasn't like one of those things where it's a straight adaptation. It was more like, oh, I see how they did this because most of the book is dialogue, which is actually very screenplay-like. And the adaptation into the book is fascinating. So that that's a good one. The Godfather is another one. Um, there's just great, great dialogue that was written in that book that ends up verbatim in the screenplay. And obviously they, they use the book as a jumping off point for numerous pieces of that narrative. But anyways, yeah, where am I going? Okay. 617-906-6638. You can, you can call in, leave me a text, leave me a voicemail. We can talk about any of these subjects, books that become great movies, favorite bad guys, best Bogart movie, whatever you got. Let me know greatest acting families, kids who are better actors than their parents, famous directors, huge directors releasing small little documentaries on the side. Just a little taste. Here you go. Who are they? Let me know. 617-906-6638. I'm going to take a Quick break, back in a flash. All right, let's talk about the music connection to this week's episode subject, Brandon Lee. If we're talking Brandon Lee, we're talking The Crow. And if we're talking The Crow, we're talking about The Crow's soundtrack. The soundtrack was released in March of 1994. And uh, this is an awesome snapshot into some alternative hard rock of the era, okay? It's got The Cure. It's got Rage Against the Machine. Violent Femmes, who were probably cast in this soundtrack just based on their name, I'm guessing. I have no idea. Stone Temple Pilots, Pantera, Helmet, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, The Jesus, and Mary Chain. Uh, it's got Nine Inch Nails covering New Order. 
Rollins Band covering Suicide, which I've never heard and I'm going to run to uh, go listen to after this. Uh, soundtrack is heavy, obviously, from these bands. Uh, brooding also, obviously, from these bands. It is a mood. Uh, and, and people dug it. It went to number one on the Billboard album chart, okay? And has since sold close to 4 million copies in the United States, joining other number one soundtrack albums like Purple Rain. Ever heard of it? Saturday Night Fever, another huge one. Top Gun, that's surprising, actually. Wayne's World. Remember when soundtracks went to number one? I've forgotten completely about it. I wish that was a thing again. It's not. Not even close. All right, the number one movie from this episode was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, sitting at the top of the heap back on March 31st, 1993, the day that Brandon Lee was tragically shot and killed on set of The Crow, as we mentioned. And here we are, 30 years later, and we got another Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie in theaters. Oh, my God. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't really know. I'm not here to judge. Uh, But some things never change, man. But I do know this. The soundtrack to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 did not go to number one, if you were wondering. Speaking of things going to number one, when The Crow was released in May of 1994, it was reportedly the number one movie in America for that first week. However, some people in the industry call bullshit on Miramax Films, hmm, claiming that Harvey Weinstein, hmm, may not have been on the up with his box office gross. Okay, some saying that Miramax overstated the film's take by as much as $1 million. The Crow was Brandon Lee's attempt to finally get out of his father's shadow and do something different. We talked about that earlier. Uh, Do something modern, do something edgy, do something decidedly less Bruce Lee, so to speak. And as you can see by the rest of of Brandon Lee's filmography, he really was pigeonholed as being just like his dad. These are literally all of his movies, okay? Legacy of Rage. Legacy of Rage. Uh, Laser Mission. Showdown in Tokyo. (laughs) I love these titles. Rapid Fire and, of course, The Crow. He was posthumously awarded the Best Actor Award at the Fangora. Uh, it says Fangoria, but it's Fangora, isn't it? Chainsaw Awards. Uh, you know, it's like the Oscar horror movies. Uh, where do you stand on The Crow? Let me know. Huge cult film now. Uh, it's got a pretty devoted following. Are you a fan of The Crow? Did you buy the soundtrack? Are you just a fan of the soundtrack? I feel like people did that. They just bought the soundtrack. And uh, how do you feel about Nine Inch Nails covering New Order or the Rollins Band covering Suicide? I want to know. Let me know. That's the scoop. That's what I got on Brandon Lee. Go listen to the full episode, okay? Hit me up. Let me know on the socials what you thought. At Pod. You can text me. You know this. You can leave me a voicemail. You know this too. 617-906-6638. I want to talk about some of the stuff I've been watching and I want to recommend some things to you. So I'm going to take a quick break, drink some tea, back on the other side with the recommendations part. This is the other recommendations part, the part of the other show where we recommend the movies and television content, the recommendations part, the part where we discuss the movies and television we're recommending. This is the recommendations part here in the Badlands Rap Party bonus episode. I am re-watching The French Connection for no reason other than it was just fucking on, man. What can I say? It caught me. It looped me in. And then I was like, hmm... All right, now I'm in. Now I can't go anywhere for the next hour and a half. I got to sit here. But my wife was like, I don't want to. So we didn't finish it. But then I went back the next night and I watched the whole thing start to finish. Fucking glorious film. William Friedkin. Unbelievable. Uh, Everyone talks about the chase scene in this film. And they should. The car chase is, it's more than a car chase. There's a whole, the chase goes on and on and on. Gene Hackman and whoever the villain is. I can't remember. I don't, not that I can't remember. I don't even know his name. Um. 
the chase scene, I, I heard that they did this without permits, the car scene, the car chase scene in Brooklyn back in the uh, early, early 70s uh, without permits. I don't know how that could be possible. If it's true, if there are any cinephiles out there who know if that's true, uh, leave me a voicemail. Let me know, 617-906-6638. But people talk about the chase scene, but what people don't talk about with the French connection is that this, I think this might be the first buddy cop movie. The rapport between Gene Hackman's character, uh, Popeye Doyle, and... Uh, 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 Roy Scheider's, uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm blanking on the character's name. But they're just constantly always giving each other shit. They're fucking with each other. It's like, it's not really part of the vibe. It is in a very passive way. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, you know Mel Gibson and, and, and uh, Donald Glover and, and Lethal Weapon. It's not, it's not, it's not, Beverly Hills cop with, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy fucking with the cops with Judge Reinhold. It's certainly not Midnight Run with De Niro and Charles Grodin. But the kernel of all that stuff, I think, may have started with the French connection. That's my take. I'm sticking to it until one of you proves me wrong, which I'm sure you will. I'm also, oh, by the way, just if you haven't seen the French connection, you have no excuses. It's one of the greatest movies ever. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, I believe. Won five. Won like best actor, best director. I think, did it win best supporting actor as well? Uh, just, just cleaned up. Five Oscars. That's incredible. Uh, and it's worth it. You watch this movie and you go, I get it. Even the ending. The ending's fucking great. And it's an adaptation of a true story, which is just as amazing. And it's in conversation with all these other films from Hollywood history, including American Gangster, another film I saw recently, uh, which I used to think was a great movie, but I no longer think it's a great movie. I think it's a very good movie. <laughs> Small distinction. But the dope from A French Connection ties directly into the dope from American Gangster. So I, I love that. About I love when different from movies from different times talk to each other in these weird unintentional ways or sometimes intentional so yeah go watch the french connection if you haven't seen it if you have seen it i know i'm not telling you anything you don't know don't hate me on that i'm not trying to be basic i'm not trying to be boring it was just on i'm being authentic and letting you know what i was watching and by the way if you've seen it and you haven't seen it in a while go watch it again it's that fucking good all right i'm also re-watching wet hot american summer the tv show i saw this when this came out on netflix years ago pre-covid era and i thought thought, okay, it's cool. It's, it's good. Now I think this is fucking amazing. <laughs> and I'm laughing my ass off constantly. It's just, it's so fucking zany and wacky and I can't even really put words to it. I'm not like a super fan of the whole Showalter, Michael Ian Black stuff. I'm not like a hater. It's just not my bag. I guess I was more, I guess, in the Apatow comedy camp when all this stuff was happening, and they're kind of happening parallel to each other. But this uh, this series is just tremendous. And if you like just crazy dumb shit uh, that's easy and just good, like a good sort of like you know palate cleanse at the end of the night, Wet Hot American Summer on Netflix. Check it out. Let me know what you guys are watching. Let me know what you're uh, getting into, what films and what TV shows. 617-906-6638. All right. Hit me up. Voicemail. Text. I'm going to take a quick break. Back in a flash with the recap. All 
All right, let's recap, shall we? Number one, the obvious, the Brandon Lee episode of Badlands is available in your feed right now. Go check that out. Number two, next week in Badlands, a brand new episode on Jane Fonda, our final episode of season eight. Number three, over in the Disgraceland feed, we just dropped our Bruce Lee episode of Badlands in the feed as a tie-in to our ongoing serialized season on Wu-Tang Clan. And that season continues next week with new episodes on Inspected Deck and Cappadonna. You get all that? Number four, if you didn't, if you got questions, you need answers on any of this stuff, call me. 617-906-6638. We're going to keep this movie conversation going. Number five, I got a split. I got other podcasts to record and I have to return some videotapes. Actually, I got to go record some ads. So right now, a second dose of bliss for yours truly in honor of this week's Badlands episode, me reading the script from The Crow. Fade in. Exterior. Cemetery. Late afternoon. Boom. A crack of lightning illuminates the silhouette of a perched crow large in the foreground. Tight angle, fresh grave. A spade smooths the walls of a new double-decker plot. Dimitri, off screen. We're losing the light. Let's pack it in. Angle, Dimitri and Alexei, two grave diggers. Scoop digger parked foreground, towering gothic-style church background, rolls of astroturf. They look up toward the sky. Alexei, snow maybe? Dimitri, what, you gonna ski on this? He indicates the mound of fresh dirt, spits into the grave. Dimitri, continue. Come on, let's back this. It's beer time. Alexei nods and unfurls the tarpaulin dirt cast, lowering the tracking shot flowers and graves. As we drill the sky side of the air, the canvas side of the as the whale collects the most of the island's food. Quit talking and start mixing!